You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. To be utterly lost in the woods is unfortunate. To be absolutely unconcerned about it is unreasonable. Yet so many people who spend weeks mastering a new video game, months learning a tennis serve, or years perfecting a golf swing will not invest a few days, or even a matter of hours, in the effort to understand better some of the deeper questions about life. In Pascal's day, there were some intelligent and otherwise well-informed people who seemed totally apathetic about ultimate issues. In our day, there are a great many. So begins Chapter 2 of the 1992 book, Making Sense of It All, Pascal and the Meaning of Life, by Dr. Thomas V. Morris. It is our pleasure at Christian Humanist Profiles to welcome Dr. Morris to our program. Tom served for 15 years as Professor of Philosophy at the University of Notre Dame and is founder and currently the chairman of the Morris Institute for Human Values in Wilmington, North Carolina. He holds a B.A. from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and the Ph.D. from Yale University. He's the author of numerous books, including Philosophy and the Christian Faith, The Stoic Art of Living, and God and the Philosophers, The Reconciliation of Faith and Reason, among many others. Today we'll be talking with Dr. Morris about his book on Pascal and the issues he addresses therein. So, Tom, welcome to Christian Humanist Profiles. Oh, good to be with you, Todd. Uh, thanks for coming on. It's, it's really uh, a pleasure to have you on. Um, before we begin uh, speaking about the book proper, I wonder if you'd like to share with our listeners your work at the Institute for Human Values. What do you do there, and how is it connected to your past work as an academic? That's a good question, Todd. I mean, I thought um, I would be at uh, Notre Dame for my entire life. You know, I'd uh, gone there straight out of graduate school and uh, gone through the assistant associate full professor route and uh I taught two days a week and had 12 teaching assistants to grade all my papers. So people said, how, how could you ever leave that? <laughs> but um, at a certain point in the late 80s, businesses started getting in touch with me, believe it or not, and asking me, did the great philosophers have anything to say about practical issues like success and ethics and uh, how to deal with change? And I said, well, you know, that's not the kind of thing they taught at Yale, so let me look into it. And I discovered this rich tradition of practical philosophy that we've pretty much been ignoring for the past 100 years, 150 years. And so uh, ever since, uh, I guess, around 1987, 1988, I've been working hard to rediscover this uh, this great wealth of wisdom uh, that comes to us east and west. And I set up in uh, in Wilmington, North Carolina, an Institute for Human Values, that I could use to bring together other philosophers and to reach out to the world of business. Notre Dame Business School helped me start up the enterprise. And so for the last 20 years, I've been um, serving the broader culture, uh, cor- cor- the corporate world and, and, and elsewhere in ways that I had never expected a philosopher would have the chance to do. So it's been a, a wild adventure. So, I, and, and this, I mean, it's fascinating the, uh, the way that, um, the way that this has, uh, taken shape. I, I wonder, could you, could you, well, maybe we'll get into this a little bit later, but, um, Plato, today, Plato, Aristotle? Yeah. I mean, isn't it something? These guys aren't going anywhere. You know? <laughs> That's and true. The funny thing is, in the world of business, 
typically speakers and authors are writing about, you know, here's what Steve Jobs did right, you know, or here's what worked at Hewlett Packard, or here's what worked someplace else, you know, over a five-year period or 10-year period, or maybe sometimes uh, a 20-year period. But people are always wondering, hey, uh, okay, maybe that worked for Steve Jobs and the, the, the start of, of, of Apple, but what's going to work in the next 10 years? What's going to work in the next 20 years? When I'm able to bring people Plato and Aristotle and Seneca and Cicero and Confucius and Lao Tzu, who've been around, you know, a couple thousand years, these guys are really aren't going to go away. You know, these are people who've understood human nature in a very deep way, and their insights can apply now just as they would have 20 years ago or just as they will 20 years into the future. And it's really not often that, especially business people, come into contact with ideas that have stood the test of time like this. So I've had this totally unexpected and totally unpredictable career as a philosopher to the business world that I never would have guessed even possible because my specialty back at Notre Dame and in graduate school was philosophy of religion and philosophical theology. And I was doing pioneer, very abstract work, um, trying to lead other philosophers into new topics and never knew I would be doing something like this. So you're right. I mean, on the, on the surface is very surprising. Plato and Aristotle for the current day, but, um, you know, I've come to realize that like Pascal, their insights are as needed now as they ever have been. Mm. Yeah. Well, and when when human business is uh, is transacted by humans, uh, people who have thought about human interaction and and even deeper questions than human interaction are important. Right. That's right. That's right. Right. Um, well, I thought I, the reason I've asked you for this interview is because of an event this fall uh, at Luther College where I teach, uh, put on by our Center for Ethics and Public Life, where uh, we had several sessions with you and, uh, and, and discussions and whatnot. And in one of the sessions we had, we focused on the book that I mentioned in the introduction, this book on Pascal. Um, how did you come to that project? What was the origin of that particular uh, that particular work? Well, that's a good question because that the book Making Sense of It All was in a sense the first book of philosophy that I wrote that wasn't just written to other professional philosophers. It was my first uh, endeavor into what I now call public philosophy. And it, it arose in an interesting way. The National Endowment for the Humanities had decided to do summer seminars for school teachers, teachers K through 12, who, you know, devoted themselves to teaching in the classroom with noble ideals in mind for the most part, and then ended up being worn down by the conditions under which they worked in public schools and parochial and private schools. And, and so NEH wanted to provide for kind of a summer stimulation, a kind of a reviving of the spirits of the, the school teachers of America. They called me up and, and asked me to come up with a seminar idea. One that I think would be broadly appealing to people, no matter what they taught, no matter what their backgrounds might be. And I'd had a, a seminar at Yale as a graduate student with a guy, Lezek Kolakowski, who was a, um, a Polish Marxist theoretician who had undergone a life conversion having read Pascal. He offered this interesting seminar on Pascal, and I sat in on his his sessions. You know, it was about 10 or 15 people around the table, and, and this guy was so passionate about Pascal, and I thought, you know what? 
Uh, I've read through the pensées once. Maybe I'll go through the pensées again and see if that might be good for the seminar. It ended up being so great for the seminar. I did. I offered these summer seminars for eight summers during my time at Notre Dame, and the 15 school teachers that we would bring together from all across America, they went nuts. They started making up Pascal T-shirts, and <laughs> they got so <laughs> into Blaise Pascal. And so I was. It was just a happy accident that I attended that seminar at Yale because my work was very analytical very much grounded in modern philosophical logic and philosophy of language. I didn't do much history of philosophy, so I was just thrilled to have discovered Pascal for myself. Some people tell me to this day, um, this is uh, their favorite book of mine. And like you said, it came out in 1992. So I think, wow, I guess I've been wasting my time since then. (laughs) I've written a bunch of other books, but it's just people like this book because Pascal himself, says so many interesting things. And my book is basically an attempt to reconstruct not what Pascal would have written for our day, but my version of his insights about life in the world. Mm. Yeah, and I and I I appreciate that explanation. Uh it because it 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 makes clear what you're doing and and uh and you are bringing you really are truly bringing pascal into the 21st century well the 20th century i guess at the time but we're not that different than 1992 um but you're doing looking at the time (laughs) yeah but you you know know, by the way a lot of people don't know that pascal wrote notes for a book on philosophy and faith and but he died before he had a chance to write the book so all we have are his notes and they're they're presented in nobody really knows the proper order of his notes it's just like you know pages and pages and hundreds of pages of a sentence a paragraph um a half a page nobody really knows the proper order of these things. So they've been published in so many different configurations. And my book, Making Sense of It All, was my basic attempt to put together these scattered insights, brilliant insights, but to put them into together into a coherent ordering that would speak to modern 20th and 21st century people. Yeah, yeah. Well, can you tell us a little bit, uh, just tell the listeners a little bit about Pascal, because most people – if they have any contact with Pascal at all, it's only through the famous wager, um, and they've really missed the breadth of who he who he was. Can you speak a little bit about that? And and then you've already mentioned the the, the pensées and how they came about, but yeah. um, maybe give us a sketch of of who this person is. Oh sure. Um, well, we're talking about 1623 to 1662. His birth and death dates. Uh, 17th century Frenchman, born into a nominally Catholic family, but it really didn't mean much to the family. And uh, little Blaze was a brilliant kid, and his dad decided to educate uh, him personally. So uh, he decided to teach Blaze all the the important topics he should learn to have a well-rounded education, except he thought that one topic was way too exciting for young minds. And so he locked up all the math books in a closet. He figured if he believed that if Blaze got any sense of the excitement of mathematics, he would forget everything else and do nothing but math. <laughs> to be well-rounded. Right. I mean, but isn't this brilliant, Todd? I mean, we parents yeah. ought to know this. If you if you want your kids to focus on something, if you want to get, get them obsessed about something, lock it away right, <laughs> and right. forbid them forever. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, 
Blaze started figuring out math on his own, you know, and by the time he was 13, his dad was taking him to amazing intellectual discussion groups, you know, salons where all the greatest mathematicians and scientists of the day would gather and somebody would read a paper and they would debate the ideas. And so when Blaze was only 16, he wrote his first paper for this group when he was 16 years old, a, a treatise on projective geometry. And, and people were so excited about it. They were saying, well, this is the smartest person in Europe. Now, again, 16 years old. When he was 19 years old, his dad was given the job of collecting taxes in a, uh, an area that had been in revolt against taxes. And so they, they moved to this other area and, and, and his dad is staying up late at night doing calculations and, and Blaze is helping him and he's saying, there should be some easier way of doing this. And this is when he's 19 years old. And so he invents and develops a kind of an early version of a modern calculating machine, uh, just to help his dad with his tax collector work. And you know, the, he goes on to make, uh, advances in pneumatics and hydraulics and decision theory. And you know, one of the early modern scientists who just kind of flying by the seat of his pants was, would, would get interested in all kinds of things. He was truly a curiosity driven character, uh, as, as most really good scientists are. And then at a certain point, um, his father, someone in the family, I believe it was his father, had a broken leg or something. And there were these guys known as bone setters who had a theological background. They would come to the family to take care of this this broken bone, and they would talk about religion. And the family had never really cared that, that much about it before, but it sort of planted a seed in, in Pascal's mind. And later on, uh, I believe it was in 1654, he had this mystical experience kind of unexpectedly late one night. And he took notes and, and he, he wrote the word fire and, and, and he, he, he wrote on just, it, it's amazing. It was like he was in the middle of this life changing kind of conflagration of emotions and thoughts. And he writes, he writes down stuff and then takes his piece of parchment, sews it into his coat and keeps it with him everywhere he goes the rest of his life. And from that moment on, he decided he was going to write a book on the power, the interest, the importance, the truth of the Christian faith. And he started taking these notes, and he died at the age of 39 before he could write the book. But we we have the notes. And he wrote some letters to people that have been collected as the provincial letters that are on theological topics, other things that, that, that he wrote that we have. But his pensées, his thoughts, his notes are the most important uh, legacy he's left us. Here he came from a... A family that was supposed to be Catholic, but they didn't really care. Most of his intellectual friends didn't even care enough to affiliate with a religion. They were completely indifferent to religious questions. And that began to irk him. That struck him as as extremely odd. And that's why he wanted to write a book to kind of goad his friends, to 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 spark in his friends an interest that they didn't seem to have that he thought was really the most important thing in the world. So that's how we got the Ponces, and that's how Pascal, even though he did so many important things in science, you know, I've read in A History of Probability, the sentence, uh, there was no science of probability before Pascal. All those things are important, but we know him best of all because of his thoughts on religion and life. Mm. Yeah, and I mean, as a as a physicist, and and with having a lot of mathematics in my background, of course, I've uh, Pascal is is has figured large for me, but that's a small subset. Um, sure. By and large, most people would would recognize him from things that they've heard, which may or may you know may just be a a, a small portion. Uh, from the Ponces, like the wager. Oh, yeah. um, so, what kind of territory does he cover? 
in the in in the pensées because as as a collected work of 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 thoughts it surely ranges wide like like Martin Luther's table talk does. I mean Martin Luther's table talk is all over the map. Yeah. Um so what kind of things does he cover outside of uh outside of sort of focus on the big questions which will be most of what we talk about later on. Oh oh yeah. I mean you get you get so many things in the pensées it's imagine, it, it, it's really un, unbelievable how much he covered. He, you get expositions of biblical passages, Old Testament and New Testament. You get you get uh, little snippets of history, little snippets of theology. But the stuff that struck people as the most powerful is that he was an amazing diagnostician of the human condition. He he was almost like a proto uh existentialist. He seemed to understand things about our experience of this world that went deeper than what anybody else had been saying. And so he got people's attention. I mean, that's why these notes were uh, brought together and put in publishable form because everybody who came across the content of these notes, they said, yeah, first of all, this is an amazing kind of pastiche or or a, a puzzle of insights about all kinds of things in life. But there's this drift that you see right away that is really all about understanding what it is to be alive in this world and what it is to, to have mysteries surrounding us and big questions, ultimate questions that we really should be devoting all our time to answering. But we find ourselves doing the opposite and devoting ourselves to the most trivial things in the world. I mean, it's almost hearkening back to Socrates, who once said, the most important things we think about and talk about the least, the least important things we think about and talk about the most. Hmm. Pascal really seemed to have that same insight that we live life upside down. We spend all our time, you know, keeping up with the Kardashians and not not thinking <laughs> why we're here. <laughs> so right. he had to kind of turn us around and say, "Look, there's some giant issues we need to get clear on." Hmm. Yeah the uh, the the quotation I read from the from the beginning of your of your second chapter. Um, when I read that, of course, I'm I'm I think immediately back to Dante. Uh, and, and, and the beginning of Inferno, uh, in which the pilgrim there is certainly not someone unconcerned with the major questions, despite the fact that he's lost in the woods. Um, you know, you have, you've already hinted at this, and so I think we'll, we'll, we'll go here. Um, these big, these big questions that Pascal is, is, is pointing out to his audience, are big questions I gather that you would say we ought to be thinking about too. Oh yeah. What are they? What and, and why are they so important? Well, right. You know, is there meaning in our lives? Is there meaning in life? Is there a purpose or reason we're here? You know, the, the old saying is, "I feel like I'm lost in the woods without a map or a compass." A lot of people feel that way, and. You know, uh, Tolstoy had his own midlife crisis. I believe he was about 49 years old. He had been, he'd been working for money and fame, basically. And, and he says, I've got more money than I'll ever spend. And I've, I'm almost as famous as Shakespeare, but so what? What's it all for? Why am I doing any of this? You know, does it have any meaning at all? And, and he went through a two year period where he couldn't 
answer the question. And he ends up writing this remarkable little book uh, called Confession. I mean, it's remarkable Tolstoy could write a little book at all. <laughs> you know, yeah. you carry around these giant Tolstoy books. But Confession is this powerful uh, account of a midlife crisis. And a lot of people start asking these bigger questions about their lives. And, you know, when you start asking about things like meaning and purpose, well, pretty soon you're asking questions about the nature of life and the nature of existence in this world, in this universe. And is there more than matter and energy? Is there, is there, is there a soul to the whole thing? Is there a God? Uh, is there existence beyond the boundaries of this life? You know, all the big questions start bubbling up and, and Pascal wanted his friends to ask these questions. I mean, he had some, you know, he had some bold aims of wanting people to actually join him in seeing that Christian faith is the best way to live and that Christian basic claims are true. But but he was fine with people starting small. Pascal really believed there's a lot of value in seeking, in searching. And he wanted to convince his uninterested friends, they should at least be seeking the answers to these big questions. They should be engaged in a search. And he didn't use some highfalutin philosophical principle. He didn't use, he didn't argue about the, you know, the intrinsic value of knowledge of ultimate things or anything like that. I think he used one of the most basic principles that any civilized person would endorse. I call it the context principle. And, and that is just to say, our behavior, what we do, and how we how we speak, how we act, um, always depends to some extent on, on context. You know, you it's like we teach our kids. There's a difference between their indoor voices and their outdoor voices, right? <laughs> and I remember the first conversation I ever had with my daughter, who's now 33 years old. But when she was a little girl, we had to talk about what's what's appropriate and what's inappropriate, what's proper and improper. And I said, you know, it wouldn't be appropriate for a dog to wear a tuxedo, you know. And she got got a laugh from her out of that. And it wouldn't be appropriate for me to wear a business suit to go swimming, you know. And we we started talking about context and when something's proper and when not. Well, Pascal noticed something really interesting. His friends were the wealthiest, best educated, and, and, and often, you know, most intelligent people of his time. And they were people who were super attuned to context. They would never show up wearing the wrong thing. They would never say the wrong thing in the wrong company. They understood the importance of context. To, to how we behave. And so he just says to him basically something really simple. Well, look, you guys understand the importance of context, but you're ignoring the biggest context of all. The big questions. Is there a God or not? Is life eternal or finite? You know, is there meaning or not? He said, everything depends on context. And so how we live Everything we do or think or say could be so different depending on the answers to these questions. You guys, you should at least be searching. Hmm. And in that, he reminds me of Paul at the Areopagus, right, who, who, who says to the philosophers, uh, all right, you have yeah. a statue to this unknown god. Let's talk a little bit about that. I mean, yeah. How, you know, so and we know we know how that discussion went. Uh, some some left away. Some were intrigued and had, said, "Come back tomorrow." Um, right. Today, 
when yeah. you when you address this question with people, with perhaps groups of businessmen that you're talking to or what have you, how 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 does that go over? Oh yeah, it's it, just like Paul, right? It's the whole range of responses. You know, some people are hard nuts to crack. You know, I mean, it, it, some people are hard to to be moved on issues like that. others get excited right away. Uh, some go through what looks like an instantaneous conversion experience. You know, and and and, and you know, Paul. The history of talking about things like this, it reminds me of a guy I knew in New Haven, Connecticut, who who owned a guitar store. It was a music store that sold guitars, and a lot of famous bands came into his store. And he was telling me once about he lived and grew up in New York City, and he, he went to a new school in a very different neighborhood. And he always wore black shoes and white socks. And he said one day at school, he shows up, in, the first day at school, he shows up in his black shoes and white socks. And he said a kid comes up to me and says, hey, nice socks. And he said, that kid beat me up that day after school. <laughs> so, I mean, right? Pascal didn't always have fans, you know. Apostle Paul didn't have all and only fans. You know, look what happened to Socrates and, and look at the story of Jesus, right? There, uh, People have the whole spectrum of reactions. But in our time, I tell you what, there are more people than you might guess who are just so excited to have the chance to talk about stuff like this. They never otherwise do. I mean, it's amazing to me how many smart people in our time have said to me basically uh, some version of this. Look, when I was in college, we used to sit up late at night and talk about all kinds of interesting and important things. And now I'm 40 or 50 years old. And all we talk about is, you know, who's playing this weekend and what are the kids doing and, you know, trivial stuff. So when I bring Pascal to people, I really see faces light up. People like appreciative. They're getting a chance to talk about this stuff. And, and Pascal, I'm sure he had some of the same experience in his time, but he had a lot of hardcore resistance that he was determined to break through. And so this is, I think, getting at uh, the content of one of your chapters, the the content on diversion, uh, where Pascal gives a reason for yeah. why people ignore such questions. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure you can speak to this either today or in Pascal's time. But the main – what is the main reason? I mean, if these questions are so big yeah, and they're staring us in the face when a loved one dies, let's say. Yeah, right. Why do we ignore them? Right, right. It's Why do we ignore them and how do we ignore them? You know, let me read a quote from the Pensees. Uh, being unable to cure death, wretchedness, and ignorance, men have decided in order to be happy not to think about such things. It's funny. It's almost like will, Pascal believed that there's a willful ignorance, that, that we divert our attention away from these big questions because we're not sure we're going to be able to come up with answers. And that's a little scary. It's like uh, being in the dark and not knowing where the light switch is or whether it's going to work. Pascal believed that we, most of us, I don't know if all of us do this, but most of us find ways to divert ourselves from questions we're afraid we can't answer. And, and question maybe some people, maybe they're afraid that if they do answer the questions, the, the answers are going to be scary. The answers are going to be unsettling. And so Pascal was the master of this category of diversion. 
What's a diversion? Well, it's a functional category, right? Anything can function as a diversion. In fact, one of the most ironic and paradoxical discoveries of my life was when I learned at Yale University that many people went to Yale Divinity School or to the Graduate Department of Religious Studies to basically keep an existential distance from the challenges of faith and turn it all into an intellectual game. So actually the study of theology, ironically enough, would become for some people a diversion away from really deeply grappling with religious questions and issues. They turned it into just an intellectual sport. Pascal believed that anything in our lives, he talks about gambling a lot because a lot of his friends were gamblers and they'd spend all day gambling. People spend all day watching televisions. People spend, it's amazing the diversions we can invent for ourselves. Now, none of these activities are inherently bad, inherently wrong, inherently problematic. Not the ones he mentions. Uh, it's just how we, how they function in our lives. Are we using them to hide from ourselves? other issues we ought to be dealing with. That's what he's always asking. Hmm. Well, I appreciated your quote. I mean, to, to bring in another voice, Woody Allen uh, oh, yeah. from Manhattan. Um, I'm just going to read this quote because it's yeah, exactly yeah. what you're saying. Um, he, uh, people in Manhattan who are constantly creating these real unnecessary neurotic problems for themselves because it keeps them from dealing with more unsolvable, terrifying problems about the universe. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's where we are. And we, we, we can't kid ourselves because we do this too, right? I mean, we who are, who, who consider ourselves to be those who might think more about these oh, ultimate yeah. questions, we also find ourselves in the same boat. Oh yeah, there, there's always something that we should be dealing with that we're not dealing with it. And in some people's lives, it could become almost as small a deal as this, right? You should be thinking more about health, about nutrition, about exercise, about that side of your life. But, but, and you know that, you know that deep down that, that these issues are calling you. You need to think through some of these things, but you won't. You don't want to. You, you, you make yourself not think about such things. Uh, it, it, there are all kinds of issues in our lives that we will hide from ourselves, divert from ourselves, keep ourselves from having to think about. And Pascal believed that the most dangerous diversion of all was that which keeps us from the ultimate life questions that we should be asking, among which are the big theological questions that he wanted his friends to ask. Yeah, I, I, it, and it's it's interesting that we see today, and I think I see it in my students, um, we do see a desire to grapple with these things, even if... I mean, there's a desire there, but they're not really sure that they want to actually take the time to do it. But right. their eyes will light up <laughs> yeah, when will. when you bring when you bring such things up. Um, but it's a it's a tough road uh, at 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 times. It is. Um, because, you know, a lot of people see these as not practical matters. And one of Pascal's themes was, well, wait, wait a minute. Ultimately, these are the most practical matters of all because. For example, the existence of God is, according to a Pascalian perspective, the question about is there a God isn't a question about whether there's one more item in the inventory of reality. It's not a question about whether one more thing should be on your list or not. You know, the atheist has a list of all the things that exist, and the theist says, plus one, God. Pascal says, no, no, really, 
if you want to steer your life properly, if you want to have the right kind of values and make the right kind of decisions, Pascal thought, you got to know the answers to things like this. Hmm. Hmm. Well, we, so, uh, we're, we're dancing toward the wager. So maybe, uh, Maybe, maybe we ought to bring it up now because I, I, I'd like, I'd like to actually get circularists back around to some of the things you've mentioned here. But, sure. um, so the wager is the most famous, uh, thing that, that is associated with Pascal. And you've noted in the book and I've, I've read it elsewhere, um, heard other people talk about the fact that the way we typically understand the wager is not right. Uh, the way it's typically presented is incorrect. So could you correct uh, correct the inaccuracies and, and tell us a little bit about the wager and how Pascal puts it. Well, a lot of critics of the wager find that it's easiest to deal with it by really caricaturing it, you know, and misrepresenting because, you know, of course, uh, the easiest way to shoot down any position is to create what's called a straw man of it, right? A real caricature of it and then just go after that. That's, that's the easy way. And a lot of people think Pascal is basically saying, hey, listen, you really should bet on God. You know, everybody in this world is either betting there is a God or there isn't a God. And, and why do I say that? Pascal said, look, either you're living as if there's a God, you're praying, you're seeking guidance, you're seeking to draw closer to God, to, 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 to try to connect with divine, uh, you know, intentions for your own life, or you're not. And if you're not doing any of that stuff, you're acting as if there's no God. So either you're acting as if theism is true, there's God, or you're acting as if Atheism is true. There's no God to be contended with. You don't have to worry about that. And he said, which is the best bet to make? Well, a lot of people you caricature Pascal like this. They say, well, yeah, hey, um, in, in deciding what horse to bet on at a horse race or, or, or what football team to bet on, anything, you, you really, a rational gambler seeking to maximize his gains over the long run considers a number of things. They consider the probability. Uh, of this particular uh, uh, bet that you're making, what's the probability your horse is going to win, so to speak? They, they got to consider the cost. What's the cost of betting at the track on that particular horse, right? And what's the payoff? What What do you get if you bet on a certain horse and that horse wins? You know, what's your what's your payoff? And it, it, Pascal had this little formula in mind, you know, and, and we call this a you know expectation, you know, p- probability. Uh, 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 you, you, you've got to fa- factor in probability, cost, and payoff. You factor those in in the right way, you get expectation. It goes beyond the mere probabilities. Now, why was Pascal interested in this? He was interested because philosophers have given arguments for and against the existence of God forever. And uh, there, there, there are two ways to, to try to convince a person to maintain a certain belief. Uh, way number one is you try to convince them the belief is true. You try to prove it's true, or you try to probabilify, bring their evidence that raises the probability over a threshold of rational belief that this thing is true. Well, that's what philosophers have been trying to do forever about the existence of God. And some were convinced that it had been proven, or others were convinced that it had been disproven. But a lot of people just thought, no, these are endless arguments that there's always going to be a, a counter argument. There's always going to be an answer, a rejoinder, a reply. And so Pascal said, look, Evidentially, uh, it looks like things are up in the air. So let's say the probability is roughly 50-50. You gotta have, you can't bet on probability alone. Nobody agrees on probability. So you gotta have something else to bet on. Well, let's think about cost and payoff. It costs 
very little to be an atheist. You don't have to go to church. You don't have to do really anything. Uh, it, it costs something to be a theist, to be a Christian or a Jew or a religious believer of any kind. There, there are certain things you should be doing, you know. Uh, so let's say there's a cost, but there's a finite cost. But, oh, with respect to payoff, if you're an atheist and you're right, what do you get? You get being right. That's some kind of a finite payoff. You, you got to do whatever you wanted to do without thinking there was any higher moral power to answer to. Well, that's a, maybe that's a finite payoff. There's a payoff, but it's a finite payoff. If you bet on God and you win the bet, you get eternal life. You get heaven and forever. You get an infinite payoff. So everybody should bet on God. And critics say, Oh my goodness. Um, one famous critic said, if I, were God, I would send to hell specifically the people who believe in me on this basis. You know, it's a, it seems like the most selfish basis imaginable. It seems like it's wait, Pascal is saying to people, listen, it's in your interest, you know, to you, you have infinite expectation versus finite expectation if you'll just bet on this horse. You know, you believe in God, start doing religious things, pray, go to church, and, and, and you might get an infinite payoff. But you, you figure out expectation, probability, cost, and payoff. You're the guy with the infinite uh, expectation. The, the theist has no such thing. And so it's only reasonable to be a theist. And people say, oh, my goodness, how could he be so crude about religious belief that, that religious belief? is about trying to maximize your personal selfish gains over the long run. Oh, my goodness, how contrary to the spirit of religion could that possibly be? Well, Pascal is saying, no, 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 no. He's basically saying, look, there's a little more, there's more subtlety to what I'm suggesting than anything like that hints of. Look, yeah, critics, critics make it sound like oh, we don't want to consider these things like cost and payoff. We just want to consider probability. But Pascal said, I'm working from the assumption that that's a muddy river, that they're the atheists with their arguments and they're the theists and their arguments. And, hey, if you find one ultimately convincing, well, you've settled the issue for yourself. But I'm saying that if you look at these things carefully enough, rigorously enough, and you persevere in your attention, then you will find it an endlessly ambiguous enterprise to try to establish by proof or probability one way or the other on the issue of God. And if you, if you find that ultimately things are murky, then there's only a couple of things else you could think about with respect to the question, how should I live? And those are the cost and payoff categories. You have to say, what am I going to invest in these issues? And, and what could, what benefits could accrue? And, and people say, well, wait a minute, Pascal was trying to, to, to get people to just spontaneously believe in God because they thought it was prudentially wise to do so, that there were, you know, infinite benefits that would accrue. You can't just make yourself believe something because you think you'll get a lot out of it. And Pascal actually believed that we do a lot more of that than, than you think, right? Because a lawyer who's being paid a lot, uh, to represent a certain party in a, lawsuit uh, can find himself really convinced of the, the merits of that suit. Pascal believed that we were more amenable with our beliefs to prudential considerations than we normally allow, but all he was trying to do was to launch people in a certain direction of seeking, the religious direction, because he ultimately believed that if he could get people through the wager to bet on God, 
not in the sense of just spontaneously believing in God, but beginning to act in a Godward direction. Try to pray. Try to seek uh, a, 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 a divine will for your life greater than your own thoughts and, and aspirations. Try to become sensitive to subtleties that might lead you in a direction. And Pascal sort of, from my point of view, Pascal was one of these very wise people who believed that with respect to certain questions in life, there are conditions for knowing. I mean, Mm -hmm. well, let's think about it on a moral level. If you're, well, not you, if a person is a totally selfish individual, right? Totally selfish person. Everything is done out of self-interest. Everything is done selfishly. And you, that person meets a completely altruistic person. He won't be able to know that person for the person they are. A a purely selfish mindset cannot understand or accept altruistic behavior for what it is. Um, There are a lot of moral philosophers who suggested there are personal conditions for knowing certain things. Like like an untutored person could walk into the Museum of Modern Art and just say, what? Is all this, you know, splatters of paint on, I could do that, you know, and not see any of the things that people who cultivated their sensibilities appropriately can see all kinds of interplay of, of form and uh, material and can see the dynamism of modern art, can see the, the interaction of the colors, can see all sorts of things, but you have to be prepared to see and know that Pascal believed that if you are living as if there's no God, you're not preparing yourself to see the evidences and have the experiences that indeed are available. So he didn't want to make some people to make this kind of gambling um, decision in a vacuum and suddenly adopt spontaneously a belief in God to get out of uh, the, the, the pot as much as they possibly could. He wanted to use the mindset that his friends all shared. They were all gamblers. And Pascal believed that ultimately we all are in many ways. And so he wanted to use those principles we move through the world on, those principles of when is it prudential, when is it reasonable to take a risk, and what sort of risks should you take. He wanted to import this for the first time that I know of into issues of of religious um, practice and belief. And that's why he wanted the people to wager in a Godward direction. And that, that's what I try to point out in the book, Making Sense of It All, that if you really look at Pascal with great sensitivity and what I call the principle of charity, okay, let's assume this is a smart guy. Pascal's a smart guy. He's not going to be making a really crude, simplistic argument. So if it seems crude or if it seems simplistic, we should go back and ask ourselves, wait, is there a better way of understanding this? And the deeper I look into Pascal's wager, the more subtleties and intricacies I could see coming to the surface. So it made me a real fan of Pascal. Now, not everybody who's read my book has necessarily agreed with me, but a lot of people have said, golly, that makes a lot of sense. You've given us a lot to think about. Pascal was plugging into a human capacity that we normally don't even think of in connection of religion, this capacity to make rational gambles, to take measured risks, in all facets of our lives, let's use it here, he says. Mm. And, and would you say that really his aim um, is to get people to ask the question, more so than to come down necessarily? I mean, I think, as you pointed out, 
he he seems to have more respect for the considered atheist than the agnostic. That's right. That's right. He believes that agnosticism is just this weird posture that can't really be sustained. In fact, the agnostic of all people ought to be the greatest seeker out there, right? The greatest of all searchers, because if you think you don't know, you ought to want to find out, you know, but, uh, but often there are these complacent agnostics and Pascal just that just b- baffled him how you could get yourself into this mindset. You, I don't know and I don't want to know. What, about the biggest issues of all, the most important questions of all? So, yeah, if a guy was a convinced atheist, I think Pascal had a certain measure of respect for that, that he wouldn't have for the agnostic. And it's funny because it's hard to be a convinced atheist if you are careful enough in your reasoning. I mean, I spent enough years in philosophy of religion to know the intricacies of the cosmological argument, the design argument, the ontological argument, the moral argument, all these different arguments for the existence of God and all the arguments against the existence of God, the problem of evil, the problem of the hiddenness of God, which, by the way, Pascal probably talked about as much as anybody. Mm-hmm. Um, but any argument that you try to construct to justify atheism, no no matter how many components it has or how few components it has, if you if you really know enough about the nature of logical reasoning, uh, you come to realize that there are premises in each of these arguments that can be suspect. And Pascal even has this great line. You know, and again, 17th century guy who says, hey, even if you were convinced by one of the metaphysical arguments, you, you, two hours later, you'd probably be afraid you'd made a mistake, right? <laughs> because these arguments get so intricate. I mean, entire books after books after books written on the ontological argument or on the cosmological argument. And really, you give it the attention it deserves and you finally realize, whew, a reasonable person uh, – it's hard to, to, for a reasonable person to be convinced on this kind of basis. So therefore, Pascal – wanted to kind of throw you into the water and teach you how to swim like that. He wanted to to get you moving your life in a certain direction. And he believed you would start having experiences. You would start having things happen to you and occur to you that would help you in a way that armchair philosophy couldn't. Hmm. That's very interesting. Um, You know, one of the things that I think people sometimes will, would, would do if they, if they, hear about the night of fire experience is is immediately leap upon pascal as some kind of irrationalist right um how does he put together uh rationality and rational argument and investigation um with faith yeah you know that's a great that's a great question because you know there are other people like pascal who are could be called existentialists like Kierkegaard and Kierkegaard is known for this image of the leap of faith, right? Uh, as if we're leaping into an abyss, you know, and, 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 and Pascal, you know, it's all started in Pascal's life from a completely unexpected, mystical, overwhelming experience late at night, you know, and, and so people wonder, wait a minute, was he ultimately a person who who, who himself believes that this wagering is going to maybe set you up for your own mystical experience. And that ultimately it's not about reason. It's about feelings. 
And isn't this irrationalist? Well, I don't think that's the case at all. I think that Pascal didn't view faith and reason in an either-or way. I think he, he viewed them as a both-and way. Yeah, his mystical night of fire kick-started a process, but what he did in response to that night was not to go out and try to have other nights of mystical experience. Um, he wasn't uh, one of these people going for, to meditation retreats every weekend, you know, to try to have an experience. He was a guy who was digging into the logic and evidence of the situation. You find an awful lot in the Pensees about the evidence. This is important, again, to kind of loop back to the wager. He didn't think the wager took place in a vacuum. He wasn't asking people to bet against all the evidence. He thought that there was a ton of evidence in favor of there being um, a God, a creator, um, a providential force behind this world. He thought there was a ton of evidence in favor of Christian claims about Jesus. He thought, thought there was a lot of a solid evidence, but that there would never be enough for some people, and then the wager kicks in, right? In fact, there may be, never be enough for a lot of people, then the wager kicks in. But the wager doesn't kick in in a kind of a mystical, irrational way. The argument for wagering is itself a rational argument, uh, demonstrating that there are different sorts of rational arguments, right? Not just an argument for the existence of God or an argument, um, a probabilistic argument for the resurrection of Jesus or something like that. There, there are these prudential arguments as well. So people who think that Pascal, you know, is an irrationalist or abandoned reason, well, he was spending the rest of his days on this earth reasoning about these things. Hmm. Yeah, I and I and I think that. Um... I th- it's very important for for people to realize that uh, th- that the wager in particular, but also other things that Pascal has to say, are not said in a vacuum. Um, that are definitely said in 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 the context, as you said, of of just looking at the world, looking with open eyes at what one sees. Um, and 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 not not ignoring that, but asking the question that maybe I'm afraid to ask, um, which uh, you know that that perhaps brings me to a, a another question, sort of as we loop around here to the been on for about fifty forty five minutes or something like that. So if you were to if you were to distill one one principle or one thing. And don't let it just be one. <laughs> but <laughs> but if, uh, just a few things. What would you say? You know, you're in, if you're in my position, all right. I'm 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 a faculty member at a college, and so I've got, uh, and in in some cases, a captive audience of of young people, who, um, who might not be looking at bigger questions. Mm. Um, what would you what would you say to them? How would you how would you um, how would you advise them to use at least part of their life um, while they're while they're in college, while they're in this unique situation uh, of of learning and exploration? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, one of the greatest things of all in this world the the engine of innovation, of creativity, the fire of passion is curiosity. And, and, and as a scientist, you, you, you know this for sure. I mean, just think about the history of science and the role that, that this quality of curiosity ha- has played in, 
and stimulating and goading people. I would say, first of all, I would, I would want to convince my students, if I were still in the classroom, that one of the most important things in their lives is lively curiosity and, 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 and almost a curiosity that's not just a flash in the pan, uh, a, a moment of wonderment. But, but curiosity that's sustained. In fact, sustaining curiosity, that's the key to making things happen in life. That's the key to new discoveries, to new innovations, to new inventions, to, to all kinds of things. Sustaining curiosity. Okay, if you can convince people that curiosity is an important human quality, and one that, interestingly, we don't talk about that much, like so many of the other important things, right? If you can convince them that's an important quality, then there's one question left. Okay. So what do you exercise your curiosity on? Hmm. Trivial matters or important things? Well, obviously important things. Okay. How about the most important things of all? That's how you try to, that's how you, I would try to move people in a Pascalian direction, you know? And it's almost like you're asking people to, you know, Cicero, I was, I was talking to somebody about this just the other day. Cicero wrote some letters to his son and, um, his son was trying to make his way in the world. Cicero, a great Roman statesman, great uh, practical philosopher. And Cicero said, you know, it's really a shame that the time in your life when you're making the most important decisions about what you will study and what you will become and who you will be, that time in your life is the time where you know the least. You know, you're in your teens, in your early 20s. You, you've had the least experience of the world, but you're, you're trying to make the most important, you know, decisions about what your life will involve, what you're going to value, what you're going to pursue, what you're going to aspire to, how you spend your time, you know. And so I always want to orient people in a Pascalian direction. Don't, don't save the big, the most important questions for last. You know, don't, don't, don't save the best for last in that respect. You, you gotta, you gotta front load the big questions to make sure that any of your other answers are right. You know, <laughs> you, you, you've got to make sure about these basic orientations before you can make the right specific decisions about how you spend your days and, and how you spend your time. So I would come at it in that kind of an odd direction from the, from the side of curiosity. In a sense, that's what Pascal was trying to do with his friends. He was trying to spark their curiosity. Hmm. It's, I, it, it's interesting, uh, to think about, uh, conversations I've had with students, uh, uh to exactly to this point, hmm. um, where curiosity is something that some of them, ha- some of them have a lot of and some of them have maybe lost that sense. Yeah. Um, unfortunately. Yeah. And they, and, and, you know, all parents will say that when their kids were little, you know, it's, it's like that, that, that well uh, confirmed anecdote about you ask kindergartners who in here is an artist and everybody raises their hand. You ask high school seniors and three people raise their hands, right? It's like <laughs> right. with artistic creativity, curiosity, have somehow waned over the years in lots of people's lives, right? Because kids, kid, that's kind of survival stuff, right? Kids have to be curious about finding out how the world works. I mean, cu- kids are curious about everything. If we can just help people reconnect with that, with their curiosity, their innate curiosity, I believe. But you're exactly right, Todd. It's almost as if it's been beaten out of them or they've been diverted away from it. And, and yet it's still, it's almost like a little pilot light, a still small flame that's that's mm-hmm. there or the embers that can be blown back 
back into a flame and get and, and basically my, my le- uh, lesson to a lot of people in their teens and 20s is look you want to know who succeeds in life it's the people whose flame burns bright hmm. not the people who've let curiosity the pilot light go out but the people who have fanned the flames big those are the people who have unbelievably interesting and exciting lives do you want to live a boring unfulfilled life or do you want to live an exciting interesting life you got to fan the flame of curiosity and oh guess what once you do that one of the side effects is effects is you're going to get interested in these big ultimate questions as well as more immediate questions yeah yeah oh that's right um well, I, I I certainly have appreciated this chance to talk to you again uh, after after uh, our meetings this fall. This was uh, it's really useful, and I I want to encourage our listeners to to grab a copy of this. There's there's uh, this book is is fascinating, and and then and then go out and buy the pensées and and read yeah. them. Yeah. Um, what else would you have? Any any closing words for? Uh, for well, you know, beyond this, yeah, it's funny that I titled my book making sense of it all, Pascal and the meaning of life. I didn't title the book uh, Pascal and the Religious Question or Pascal and the Existence of God. Pascal's ultimate aim was to help people find meaning in their lives and make sense of this world that we live in, make some kind of sense of it. And if, if, if we Think about the ultimate questions properly, not just as an endless intellectual game, but if we let Pascal be our guide into some of the productive ways to think about these things, then we liberate ourselves into all kinds of explorations and investigations that are going to enhance our lives and enrich our lives. And that's what I think Pascal can do for us now in the 21st century. He can be a great um, life guide to new forms of thought, feeling, and ultimate enrichment. He can help us to come up with the sense of purpose and meaning we need for our lives so desperately to contextualize everything we do. That sounds like a good word to end on. So um, thank you so much, Tom. Thanks for coming on. Uh, It's great to be with you, Todd. Thanks for asking to talk about such things. They, They really matter a lot. You bet. Well, listeners, this has been another podcast of Christian Humanist Profiles, a member podcast of the Christian Humanist Network. Our intern is Zach Schmidt, and our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. For Christian Humanist Profiles, this has been Todd Pedler signing off now. Thanks for listening.